1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Richard Ford, on his latest novel, Be Mine. Richard Ford is the author of The Sportswriter... Independence Day, which won the Pulitzer Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award, The Lay of the Land, and the New York Times bestseller Canada. His short story collections include the bestseller Let Me Be Frank With You, Sorry for Your Trouble, Rock Springs, and A Multitude of Sins, which contain many widely anthologized stories. And today we're here to talk about Richard's latest book, which is Be Mine. Richard, welcome to Little Atoms.
0: Really nice to get to talk to you. Me, it's a pleasure.
1: So Be Mine is the fifth book about the character Frank Bascom. Um, So first of all, remind us something about who he is.
0: Well, Frank is in this book 70, I don't know, five, six years old. I I used to know. And I've been writing about him, making him up, since he was 39 years old. And it has been the period of his middle life uh, right now out to his elderly life. Started off in the first book as a sports writer. He's a divorced man with um, three children, one of whom dies, and then he becomes an estate agent. And um, after that, uh, retires from being an estate agent. And uh, it's, it's just really about a swath of American life that seems to me to be available to and accessible to and understandable by anybody. You don't have to be an American to get this man.
1: I think there's something particularly interesting about because you know the first book was the sports writer and he starts off as a writer, but as you just said, spends most of the most of his career as in real estate as an estate agent. And I wanted to talk to you about looking at America through the prism of that industry because it's something that obviously everybody needs a home, everybody loves their home, and yet you know the property market is often at the hard end of. Of capitalism, we obviously had a, you know the subprime situation over there, there's been various yes. property crashes. So tell me something about that choice to make him a, a real estate agent.
0: In the first book, I had him be a sports writer because that's something I knew something about and could populate the book as a vocation uh, for him with all kinds of details and all kinds of things that I knew and that I thought were interesting and funny and also interesting enough to be taken seriously. But when I came around to write about him again, I didn't feel like I had the chops to make him be the same thing he was in the first book. I thought I had to make the second book be different. And so, because I knew a lot about what we call real estate in the United States, had been in lots of realtors' cars, had bought lots of houses and rented lots of houses and lived in lots of houses, I thought, well, because it's important to me for any character that I write uh, to have a vocation that is plausible. I could make him be a, an estate agent because, as again, I knew a lot about it. And what I didn't anticipate was, which is what you are averring, that estate agents' real estate into home becomes a lens right into the middle of the American experience, but in a poignant way. Because, as you say, where we live is 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 everything to us in a way. It's where we will die. It's where our most poignant and important life events will occur. When we look out our windows, and what we see is is the nature of our lived life, and so. Apart from that, too, there is just the whole economics of it. How real estate is a barometer to the national temper. How we feel and thrive or fail to thrive within the real estate market is a fairly good measure of our buoyancy.
1: Tell us again, then, where Frank is. You said he's semi-retired. So where do we find him at the beginning of this novel? What situation is he in?
0: At the beginning of this novel, he has retired from being an estate agent and is in his uh, middle 70s with two children in his life who live elsewhere. He lives in central New Jersey in a little town I made up called Haddam, New Jersey, which is more or less in the area of where Princeton, New Jersey is. And um, he is working part-time for an old employer from his early realty days in a company which does um, what's called House Whisperers they actually find and sort of curate house sales to people who don't want their house sales to become public. They're a sort of organization that I made up, but I had an odd feeling that when I made it up that I probably can't make it up. It probably already exists or I wouldn't be able to make it up. So House Whisperers was my invention, but if it hasn't already occurred, it's occurring now. And in fact, on television in the United States, Since I have been finishing this book in the last year, I have seen an ad for some organization in which some shady looking guy standing on a street corner is the house whisperer. So I thought, well, it makes my wife happy when I make up these things and the culture finally catches up with it. You know, you're being something, you're doing something right.
1: So you mentioned that Frank has in the past, um, and this is the, you know, the plot of uh, the sports writer, he's lost one of his sons. Um, but his his younger son, Paul, is a focus in this novel. And so tell us something about Paul and who he
0: is. Well, Paul is 47 years old, and he's a zany 47 years old, because he's been in the other books as a zany 15-year-old and as a zany 30-year-old. Uh, he's, he's he's not on the spectrum. We don't think he's on the spectrum. He's not that kind of zanyist But he's, He's he's just a changeling. He's just a he's just an exceptional, perfectly functioning, perfectly plausible, weird guy. And uh, I liked making him up immensely because probably of all these characters, I was as a young boy more like Paul than I was like anybody. Very language addicted, um, not terribly rational. Um a little bit on the outs. Though he's more on the outs than I was, but and he has amyotropic lateral sclerosis. So by the way, he has Lee Gehrig's disease, or as you would say in Britain, he has motor neuron disease and is going to die.
1: So what is that? Tell us a bit more about what ALS, or as Paul calls it, owls, which is owls. very amusing. Um like it's a bar. Um what is ALS? What is it doing? Well, What's it gonna do to him? It is uh, a breakdown
0: of the motor neurons in the back of your skull, and its effect is that the signals that it sends out to the muscles in your body, particularly your appendages, but ultimately all of your muscles, those messages begin to be occluded, and then they begin to be blocked, so that what you have is not only muscle atrophy, but muscle death, and then over time, sometimes it can be a relatively short time, a year. Sometimes uh, it can last for 20 years as your muscles gradually stop being functioning and then ultimately, because the muscles in your, that allow for you to breathe, also die and you drown. Basically, if you're you're unlucky, if you're lucky, you get hit by a truck someplace.
1: And as the novel starts, Paul is just coming to the end of a... A program at a hospital, a sort of experimental program. Tell us something about that. Well,
0: he has this experimental program at the Great Mayo Clinic, which is in Rochester, Minnesota, and is the sort of top of the heat uh, in the healthcare industry. It's it's the great place that anybody who could go would go. And Paul uh, goes there because Frank has been there in a previous book that I wrote called The Lay of the Land when he had prostate cancer. And so uh, because Frank's old girlfriend, uh, Catherine Flaherty, is a, a physician in La Jolla, California. She is able to get Paul into this experimental drug program, which will not cure him, which will only allow him to be, he feels, useful for subsequent generations of people with ALS. So he engages in this program knowing that it won't help him, which is a kind of wonderful, in his case, irony, because what he needs is for somebody to cure him, and the one thing the Mayo Clinic, this great curative institution in the heart of America, can't do for him is cure him.
1: So that's the answer then to, to why Rochester. I was going to ask, because in the main, the novels are, I mean, not entirely set, but let's say based, because often there are road trips and that's what else we'll, we'll come to. But in the main sets, as you've already mentioned, in New Jersey, this one is based. They are based at the beginning of the novel in Minnesota. So that's why. But right. tell us something more about about this setting in particular Minnesota.
0: Well, it takes place in Rochester Minnesota, which is where the Mayo Clinic actually resides, which is this gigantic institution of many many buildings in 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 the heart of basically the cold zone of America. And this is in the middle of February, so it's particularly cold there. It is it is an iconic institution which kind of consumes the town of Rochester and uh it's to there that Paul and Frank go and they reside in a flip house which is owned by frank's employer who happens to be a tibetan named mike mahoney back in new jersey so it's got a new jersey tie the book does and then they go there and they stay in this flip house until frank's uh till paul's time at the clinic is over and then they strike out because frank wants to do something for paul to celebrate his graduation from this program they go to mount rushmore which is um not close by, but on the other side of the state of uh, South Dakota, which you can drive to from Rochester, Minnesota, in about 10 hours. A short American trip.
1: Tell us something more about you. You mentioned that that Paul is zany. I love the fact that he is a ventriloquist. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, in this book, he's developed an obsession with the um, obscure 1960s singer Anthony Newley. Yes. Tell me something about that.
0: Well... I am fascinated by Anthony Newley. I am sort of fascinated by his person, his persona, his singing voice, the fact that he was so multi-talented as a a writer of songs. Um, He wrote Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, which was a huge Broadway smash. and was, for me, a kind of just natively compelling character to watch, sing, and be on the stage. And I got fascinated by him, as David Bowie was, by the way. David Bowie actually completely mimicked Tony Newley in developing his own singing style and voice. So I just thought, gee, I'm interested in Tony Newley. Wouldn't it be interesting if Paul was interested in Tony Newley and then I could use what I knew to kind of people the fascination that he has? It's also, you know, this this novel is a comedy about a very dark subject. So I just thought being fascinated by Anthony Newley was hilarious.
1: I was I was literally going to raise David Bowie because I, when you listen to early early David Bowie, absolutely, it's so obvious that he is just copying Anthony Newley, and it's and a real revelation it. when you when you find that out.
0: And he completely admits it. He's he's completely cool with it. I love it about him. I remember the first time I heard David Bowie was in 1974 at the University of Michigan, because one of my colleagues there was doing a PhD in, I don't know, something. I think rock music. It was in those early days when you could do a PhD in fucking anything. And um, she played David Bowie on her little recorder. And I said, her name is Denise Blue. I said, Denise, I said, he sounds just like Anthony Newley. And she was so hot about that. She just seemed so insulted that I would say that the great David Bowie sounded like Anthony Newley. That's exactly who he sounds like, as you say, in his early days. And later in the Ziggy Stardust days, he doesn't anymore. He didn't you know, if you know anything about David Bowie, and you obviously do, he had a hell of a time getting started. He just almost could
1: never get any traction. And one of the reasons was that he couldn't sing very well. Yeah, that's incredible now. Nobody would have that chance nowadays to, <laughs> to just have a career of failure and failure yeah. and failure and then and then suddenly. suddenly I mean, that's the same with writing as well. Obviously, you know, it's all about the debut novel nowadays. You know, I mean, Is nobody it gets to write three or four novels until they, uh, until they get into their stride.
0: Yeah, nobody gives you a chance to fail anymore. I mean, when I was when I was a young novelist, I mean, my my first two books didn't fail, but they also didn't really succeed, other than to get published. They didn't find a lot of readers, and nobody, no, nobody held a gun to my head at that time. Now these poor kids, they. Publish a debut novel, and everybody wants them to be famous, and then the second book comes along, and it's a little different from the first book, and boop, they're gone. It's wrong. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door.
1: listening to little atoms i'm neil denny today i'm talking to richard ford and we're talking about his latest novel be mine and richard back to frank and frank is very much what the young people today pejoratively would call a boomer like his like is that is that a a pejorative term nowadays it is yeah because you can be be just
0: being born from when you were born
1: the idea of a character like, like Frank or, you know, his literary contemporaries like, you know, Rabbit Angstrom are people that grew up in an America that never had it so good, you know. And they benefited from, although they, they live these lives of, you know, various divorces and strife and everything, they live in an America that was prosperous. And nowadays, this book is set in a very different America. Frank is commenting on America um right. that's much more fractured much less prosperous than it was than the america as he was growing up was um, much more
0: diverse but much more diverse and much more successfully diverse
1: mm-hmm. but nonetheless fractured and we see the first time we see donald trump in this novel there's a fantastic little sketch of the man from frank and yeah i just wanted to talk about that, that like frank's view of contemporary america i guess
0: well, I don't think he has any, a view any more than I have a view, which is to say that it's a received experience. You you get your view of America from news media of all sorts, but you also have to factor in what the news media tell you within the framework of your own lived life and observable experience. I mean, it's one of the reasons why this book is only part ways political, though it is part ways political, but only. Um, is is that I I didn't want to populate the political side of this book with just a bunch of received news bites that everybody else already knows. I had to have it be what a person actually will notice when he's driving around, which is to say that he sees cars that have both a Trump and a Biden sticker on the back. He um, He sees yard art throughout the whole nation, which is that America is a country that doesn't like Government, but thrives on politics, as as a sort of a substitute TV show. I mean, there's almost no place in America that you can go that somebody isn't running for office, and that and these yardstickers are up on everybody's yard. But but somehow nobody likes government. They want government to stay the hell out of their business, but they want to be voting and not voting and having opinions about political events and politicians all the time. They're addicted to politics, but they hate government, which I, which I think is just really odd and funny, really.
1: We talked already about the uh, the real estate market, and at the time, I forgot to ask you about Mike. You brought up Frank's former partner, now boss, Mike, who's a, a wonderful character who has featured through numerous books. So tell us a little bit more about Mike.
0: Well, Mike Mahoney is a Tibetan, and his actual name is Lubsang Dargi, but Frank, understands that when Mike was first in this country, as happens to many immigrants, all of his colleagues decided to give him a name that they could pronounce, which was to give him an Irish name, Mike Mahoney. So he goes from being lobsang dargee to becoming Mike Mahoney. And in the process, he finds a sort of purchase in life in New Jersey and uh, divorces his Tibetan wife and marries an elderly Jewish woman and becomes rich in the real estate market by selling distressed seaside real estate, which is, of course, what happens all the time in the United States, only not to Tibetans.
1: And I wanted you to say something about the, the various women in Frank's life over the years. And indeed, there's a, a new character in this book, Betty, who he meets. Um, yeah. So tell us something about the the various women in his life.
0: Well, Betty, particularly Betty Tran, is a an American of... Vietnamese heritage. She is the granddaughter of people who were American cooperatives in the 60s in Vietnam and who escaped. And she's grown up in central Minnesota, where a lot of immigrants do grow up with a sort of a American purchase on life, even though she's fully Vietnamese, at least genetically. And then she is a massage therapist. And while Frank is waiting for Paul to go through his everyday treatments, he is so sort of overwrought by what's happening to his son that he sees an ad in a newspaper and decides that he will go get a massage. And in this massage establishment, which is in Rochester, he meets Betty Tran, who is his massage therapist, and he falls in love with her, which I thought would be outrageous and would probably get me in a lot of trouble that some old white guy writing about a young Vietnamese massage therapist would just be too much for a lot of people. But it actually it's turned out not to bother anybody at all, which you know, which proves I guess something about how much I understand about what's going on in the culture, because it didn't seem to care. Nobody seemed to care. Even the sensitivity at it, which I had to experience and endure at HarperCollins in the United States. I thought, oh, this is gonna get me in a lot of trouble. All I'm gonna hear is this has to, you have to take this out of your book. But nobody said a word.
1: So what was your experience of that like then? Because that sensitivity editing is something that is a bit of a uh, hot potato at the moment. But you know, to me, it seems like just an extension of of research. You know, if you're writing a book about a historical period, one would expect you to do the research on that thing. So how have you found the the experience of, I guess, having somebody else look at your work for that purpose?
0: Somebody else who doesn't know much, by the way. Um, well, I think in Britain, the sensitivity edit is probably a little more rife upon the world than it has come to be in the United States. Two years ago, when I published a book of stories, I I really had a lot of, as I think the word is, pushback from the sensitivity editors. Two years later, when I'm publishing now, Be Mine?, a lot of those issues have subsided and people don't seem to care as much about them as they did two years ago, which lets you know just exactly how profound that sensitivity actually was. It was just all about money and the publishers ducking before they were hit. Uh, nobody has who does these sensitivity edits, as far as I can tell in my own experience, and I have two experiences in it. Nobody has any conviction about this. They're just trying not to get in trouble in such a way that it would cause the publishers some some money. But what I did was I just put into the book everything I wanted to put into the book without much thought that somebody was going to come along and tell me to take some stuff out. But I did leave in some things purposefully that I knew would attract their attention so that they would maybe be able to feel good about getting me to take some things out and that I would agree to take out because I didn't give a shit anyway. So I just left those things in. Then I took them out. And so all the things that I really cared about, I got to leave in. I mean, you have to try to deal with your editor's own predilections, you know.
1: Happiness is the, one of the themes of the books is Is happiness. And and I guess the way that our idea of what happiness is and what can be attained changes throughout our lifetime and as one gets old. So tell me something about the, the theme of happiness in the novel.
0: Well, it goes way back to The Sports Writer. When I started to write The Sports Writer, I was said to my wife, I said, I I think I'm going to try to write a a novel about a man who's a sports writer. I said, do you have any thoughts about this? I'm always asking my wife if she has any thoughts about things, and I wish she had more. It would help me out, but she helps me a lot. She said, well, what I would do if I were you, she said, is rather than do what you have been doing for the past two novels, which very few people read, why don't you write a book about somebody who's happy for a change? And so that kind of put me on to the, to the trail of happiness right from the beginning, how are you able to generate a sense in your own heart and in your imagination that you are happy? And I don't just mean happy like Disneyland happy or happy like Christmas morning or an ice cream cone. I mean happy in such a way that faces all the inevitabilities and realities of your life so that it really, happiness has real traction in your life. So that has carried me through writing all of these books and since this is the last of these books I thought I would make that be the central premise of the book. How do you how does one in the face of the death of one's surviving son emerge at the end of the book able to say I'm happy? Cuz I think that's one of the things that will allow us to survive if surviving in fact is what we want to do.
1: And just one more thing, and then I'll ask you to to read a bit of the book for us, if you would. As I said, there are five books based around Frank Bascom, and all of these books also have, I guess, as a sort of organizing principle, they're all set around uh, a holiday or a significant date. This one's set around um, Valentine's Day, which is not a holiday, but a significant date in the calendar. So I just wanted to talk about why you chose to do that.
0: Well, for a very practical reason because I thought if I set a book on the 4th of July or on Thanksgiving, which you don't even probably have in Britain, um, or big national holidays, Easter, that when the typical American reader reads it, she or he will have memories which are then invocable for that particular time, so that a novel which is set at that period will have a kind of recognizability and also a a palpable emotional environment to it. We all know how we feel when we, we all know how Easter feels. We all know how in America, Thanksgiving feels. We all know how Valentine's feels. So it was just a ploy to try to make uh, the book to a reader recognisable and plausible emotionally.
1: Let's finish it off. Can I get you to read us a bit?
0: Lately, I've begun to think more than I used to about happiness. This is not an idle consideration at any time in life, but it is a high-dollar bonus topic for me, born 1945, approaching my stipulated biblical alignment. Being an historical Presbyterian, not attending, not believing like most Presbyterians, I've passed easily through life observing a version of happiness old Knox himself might have approved, walking the fine line between the twinned injunctions that say whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger and happiness is whatever is not bludgeoning unhappiness. The second being more Augustinian, though all these complex systems get you to the same mystery. Do what now? This median path has worked fairly well through most situations. Life has flung my way. A gradual, sometimes unnoticed succession through time Without anything great happening though nothing unsurvivable, and most of it quite o okay. k, the grievous death of my first son, I have one other divorce twice I've had cancer, my parents have died, my first wife has also died. I've been shot in the chest with an a r fifteen and nearly died myself, but improbably didn't. I've lived through hurricanes, and what some might say was depression. it was mild if it was depression at all nothing however has sent me spiraling to the bottom so that cashing in my own chips seemed like a good idea much quite good contemporary literature which i read in bed and if i angle the page right is all about just such matters with happiness ever elusive but still the goal yet i'm not sure if happiness is the most important state for all of us to aspire to there are st- Statistics on these subjects, graduate degrees, fields of study offering grants, a think tank at UCLA, happiness apparently declines in most adults through their 30s and 40s, bottoming out in the early 50s, then sometimes starting up again in the 70s, though it's not a sure thing. Knowing what you fear in life may be a more useful measure in skill set. When asked by an interviewer, do you feel you could have been happier in life? The poet Larkin said, no, not without being someone else. Though purely on average, I would say, I've been happy. Happy enough, at least, to be Frank Bascom and not someone else. And until late days, that has been more than satisfactory for getting along. Recently, however, since my surviving son Paul Bascom, who's 47, became sick and presenting well-distinguished symptoms of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, Though there's speculation, the iron horse really didn't have it, but had something else. The subject of happiness has required more of my attention.
1: So I've been talking to Richard Ford. We've been talking about his new novel, Be Mine, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about
0: it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for doing it.
1: This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.
0: Planning for your next trip?